0: This is Future of Work Pioneers with your host, Dr. Harpreet Singh at Harvard University. In this show, we speak with pioneers and thought leaders about workforce transformation, AI, and leadership in this exciting space.
1: Hello, everyone. I'm Harpreet Singh, welcoming you to the Future of Work Pioneers podcast. Today, we are speaking with Professor Stuart Russell, Dr. Russell was trained at Oxford and Stanford. He's currently a member of the faculty at UC Berkeley, where he holds the Smith-Zadeh Chair in Engineering. He's also an adjunct Professor of Neurological Surgery at UC San Francisco and Vice Chair of the World Economic Forum's Council on AI and Robotics. Professor Russell, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Harpreet. nice to be here.
1: So I I spent one summer teaching at Oxford and found it to be a very different experience when compared to an American university. Given your training at both Oxford and Stanford, it would be really interesting to hear your thoughts on the differences between the English and the American higher education. Who's doing a better job uh, when it comes to preparing young people uh, to become productive and well-rounded citizens? Uh,
2: So that's a great question, I should say. Say I was only an undergraduate at Oxford, um, and so I saw it from the receiving end. Uh, And the Oxford and Cambridge systems are somewhat different from most other universities, even in the UK, because uh, the majority of the teaching is done through tutorials. So for our American listeners, uh, a tutorial is where a faculty member meets uh, either one-on-one or one-on-two with undergraduates, uh, typically once a week, Um, And uh, they are responsible for teaching the material of an entire course uh, to that student or to those students. And um, it's a very different form of instruction. So typically uh, in the mathematical sciences and physical sciences, um, there'll be a problem set each week and you'll bring your solutions uh, and discuss them. Uh, and explain where you got stuck. And then the professor will try to get you unstuck. Um, and if all goes well, then you'll spend the the remaining 45 minutes uh, talking about the next topic. Um, and sometimes the professor will just say, go to the library and find out about uh, uh, low temperature semiconductors. And uh, so that would be your assignment for the week and you'd come back have to come back with something interesting to say. Uh, so there was very much, um, very much more open-ended, self-directed learning uh, in the English system. Uh, we had no grades, so the only grade that matters is the uh, the grade you get from your final exams at the end of three years or four years, uh, by which time you already have a job, or uh, you've already been admitted to or rejected from graduate school. Uh, so. Um, I would say the English system works very well for people who have a great deal of initiative uh, and motivation um, and are able to resist distractions. Uh, And I think the American system where we give grades, we have lots of graded homework, uh, every course matters uh, towards your overall GPA. Uh, I think it's better suited um, it, as, as a natural transition from the way things are done in American high schools, uh, I would say I did not make the best of my Oxford education. I was much more on the distracted side. So I think uh, actually a combination would be good. I think you do need uh, you do need that incentive, uh, you know at least every term, every semester, to get a grade. Um, you know, in order to get you out of bed in the morning and and go go to complex analysis lectures or whatever it is. Um, So I think I would have probably done better in the American system. Um, But uh, my daughter has been uh, a freshman at Berkeley and a sophomore at Oxford uh, over the last two years, Uh, and she absolutely loves the Oxford system. Uh, She finds the tutorials so much more useful because, uh, you know, you in a lecture system you get to ask one question every two weeks in a tutorial system uh, you get to ask 100 questions every week and so she just learned so much faster Well, that
1: that's fascinating and 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 at oxford you 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 get to wear your
2: robes uh, like at hogwarts uh, when you're taking your exams <laughs> that's right yes and a, a white bow tie uh to, to take your exams so it's uh it's still a it's a beautiful city uh i used to walk every day just around the streets of oxford looking at the colleges and the beautiful green lawns uh, and the ancient buildings and uh, i loved it
1: but but, but i guess in some ways uh in in the humanities uh, in the us we do have seminars right so they're kind of similar to a tutorial where you sit around a table 10 people and you discuss a book or you discuss a topic every week
2: uh, a little bit, yes. I mean, in the humanities tutorials in Oxford, uh, you bring an essay every week and you read it to the professor who then tears it to shreds. Uh, and, uh, I mean, I remember I, I did a PhD uh, Viva Voce exam uh, at Oxford uh, when I was visiting um, and the other professor told me, OK, here's, here's the point. We grill them until we have proved that we're cleverer than they are and then we pass them.
1: That's great. I want to switch to your book, Uh, Human Compatible, AI and the Problem of Control. Uh, I found it to be fascinating. Uh, Can you summarize the main arguments of the book for our audience?
2: Sure. It's actually a pretty simple argument. Uh, So we begin with an understanding of what do we mean by artificial intelligence, how is it commonly understood? Uh, and I boiled it down to what I call the standard model, which is that we build machines whose actions can be expected to achieve their objectives. And we plug in the objectives and then off they go. Uh, and that that standard model was sort of borrowed from, you know, an ancient philosophical and economic notion of rationality in humans, that uh, a human acts. Rationally, when they act uh, in such a way that can be expected to achieve their objectives or maximize their expected utility in the economic language. And um, so that concept was borrowed and plugged straight into AI. Uh, And not just in AI, actually. In economics, uh, we design policies to maximize uh, some specified objectives, such as quarterly profit or GDP uh, or welfare. Um in control theory we minimize a cost function, and in statistics we minimize a loss function and so on. So it's actually a pretty common model. Uh, and the problem is it doesn't work. It only works when you're sure that the objective that you're plugging into the machine is, in fact, the complete and correct description of your preferences about how the future should go. Uh, and we've known since at least uh the Ancient Greek period, when they had the legend of King Midas, uh, that we're not very good at specifying objectives completely and correctly. Uh, so King Midas got it completely wrong. He said everything I touch should turn to gold, and that's what he got. Uh, and then he realized that included his food and his drink and his family. So um, as we're seeing already, uh, when we build AI systems this way, uh, they can have serious negative consequences. Uh, we look at. Uh, You know our social media platforms which select content for billions of people to spend hours every day reading and watching and those algorithms that select that content are designed to optimize uh, a simple objective like click-through, right? What's the probability that the user will click on this thing that I'm selecting for them? uh, Or engage with it or read it or whatever and um and we're already seeing the consequences of that. In fact, what the algorithms are learning to do is uh, not just to to send people only the things that they're interested in, which of course we, we understand as the filter bubble, but uh, to manipulate people because by manipulating people, the algorithms can turn them into more predictable clickers, which is all they care about. Um, and whatever consequences that has for the human race, the algorithms are totally indifferent for that because they're maximizing click-through. So, uh, and this is gonna get much worse as AI systems get better and better, the outcomes for humanity get worse and worse, which is pretty much the definition of a terrible engineering methodology, right? (laughs) The better better your solution to the problem, the worse the outcome. Uh, so, um, So the second half of the book says, we need a new model for AI, And in particular, we need a model where we are not plugging in specific objectives. And so what that actually means is that um, the true objective, which is the satisfaction of human preferences about the future, um, is hidden from the machine. So that it knows that that is the objective, but it doesn't know what it means. It doesn't know what humans prefer the future to be like. Uh, And it knows that it doesn't know that um and when you design machines that way um then all of a sudden uh these scenarios of the machine you know turning turning the planet into a pile of paper clips because we said make paper clips or you know turning the oceans into sulfuric acid because we said you know please restore you know the carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere to fix global warming uh you know whatever we got wrong uh the machine will now behave differently. It will say, uh, for example, you know, I come up with a plan to fix the carbon dioxide, but it involves turning the oceans into sulfuric acid. Is that okay, right? And it will do that because it wants to avoid messing with the part of the world about which it's uncertain as to whether we like it or not, right? It doesn't want to change anything in the world if that change might be deleterious to humans. and in the extreme case, it would happily allow itself to be switched off, because it wants to avoid doing whatever it would be that would cause us to switch it off in the first place.
1: Yeah, and um, then, and in, on a related note, you know, you raise this question regarding uh, human level or superhuman AI, and you ask this question: What if we do succeed uh, in, in doing so or building something like this? So. And, and you think this is the most important question facing humanity. So so how do we think about this problem? How do we address such a problem from not happening?
2: So, right. So the, the uh, natural extrapolation of our current technological approach to AI is that as the machines become more and more and more capable, uh, it becomes harder and harder to interfere with the... Uh, the process of optimizing the objective, which is how we design our AI systems. Uh, so we specify the wrong objective. The machine uh, is pursuing that objective, and in fact, it will, if it's uh, sufficiently intelligent, it will take steps to prevent us from interfering uh, with uh, with whatever it is that it's pursuing. And as we realize that, in fact, we specified the objective wrong, it, it's in some sense too late. So we lose control, um, and uh, Some people, so Steve Omohundro in particular, have argued that for almost any objective, um, the natural method to optimize the probability of success uh, by the machine is to acquire uh, as many computational and physical resources as possible, uh, and to take preemptive defensive steps to uh, to ward off any route by which uh, people might interfere with the process of achieving the objective. Um, and so you really do end up in a, a conflict, uh, a chess match for the future of the world. And we know what happens when we play chess with machines. We just lose. And uh, it, it's quite possible that we would see disasters of this kind on a smaller scale before it was too late. In fact, I would argue that we might be seeing one already with the social media content selection algorithms, uh, simple as they are. Um, But uh, it also might be the case that uh, we don't see it until it's too late, until we really have uh, irreversibly lost control. So the the solution that I'm proposing uh, uh, avoids that Failure mode for AI. Um, I, I think at the moment we have relatively simple theorems and relatively simple algorithmic instantiations of of this uh, new kind of AI. Um, but in those uh, in those simple models, the right thing happens, uh, and we can actually prove that uh, the machine will be beneficial to human beings, uh, even though it starts out not knowing what that even means. Um, and so i'm i'm pretty optimistic about that i think there are some other very difficult open problems that we face um i think the problem of misuse is very serious uh we we already have a trillion dollar cybercrime problem uh and they're just getting started uh and with the availability of uh of ai then that would be a much more serious problem and we, we call that the dr evil problem uh and the, the second one is, uh, is overuse. So assuming that we have beneficial AI and assuming that uh, people, are, people learn not to misuse it, then um, we may be tempted to, uh, to use AI too much. Um, we turn over more and more of the management of our civilization and the knowledge of our civilization to machines. And if you think about it, right, I did a little calculation, um, and it turns out that we've spent about a trillion person years over history uh, teaching the next generation how to run our civilization. Uh, All the knowledge that we had accumulated so far, pass it on. Otherwise, it dies and we die. Um, But, uh, you know, so that's a huge amount of effort, uh, and we had no choice. But if we have a choice where we can pass it on to machines who will do everything for us, uh, then perhaps we won't make the effort anymore. Uh, and that story um, you can see in uh, E.M. Forster has a story from 1909 called The Machine Stops, which I highly recommend. Uh, you know, the, one of the earliest forecasts of the internet, uh, iPads, video conferencing, uh, MOOCs. Uh, the reluctance to have face-to-face contact with other human beings and computer-induced obesity are all there uh, in that story in 1909. But uh, in that story, people have become completely dependent on the machines uh, with predictably bad consequences.
1: Well, I, I, I've definitely read E.M. Forrester's A Passage to India. I didn't know he wrote about machines as well.
2: <laughs> That's right, yes. It was usually costume dramas, and, <laughs> but he did write science fiction.
1: That's great. So, so uh, uh, you, you touched a little bit about the history, and you also have talked about uh, AI bubbles that burst. So, can can you, for the benefit of the audience, um, just touch upon that? Uh, explain uh, what are these bubbles, and what are the historical antecedents?
2: Uh, so, a bubble comes about when. Uh, Claims are made or expectations arise about the capabilities of AI systems that are not fulfilled by the actual systems uh, that we can produce. So I think um, in the early mid 60s there was a great deal of excitement. You know we um, we had some quite interesting ideas about machine learning, about machine reasoning, uh, uh, translation of languages. And, uh, and actually some moderate degree of success. So I think probably the most impressive was Arthur Samuel's checker playing program, which, which taught itself to play checkers to a quite good level, you uh, know, strong amateur level, better than 95% of human beings, um, and uh, was demonstrated on television in 1956. Uh, and you could imagine that caused uh, a huge uh, amount of excitement. Um, and I think people then believe that if you could have a program that learned to do something that's difficult and complicated, uh, that really t- taxes the mind of human beings, um, and it could do that entirely by itself, then we, we were on the brink of superhuman machines. Uh, and many AI uh, professors uh, made that kind of prediction. Uh, but the technology turned out to be very limited. Uh, And in the late 60s, several several well-funded projects uh, basically ground to a halt without any success, uh, machine translation being one of them. Uh, And that led to uh, the first massive cutback in funding. Uh, It wasn't called an AI winter uh, in those days because the phrase nuclear winter hadn't yet come into common parlance. That was uh, around 1980. So... Uh, so the, but we now call it the first AI winter. Um, and uh, in the UK, uh, AI was in some sense officially banned. Uh, after the Lighthill Hill report, uh, the government uh, basically forbade the funding agencies from funding AI at any, anywhere other than Edinburgh and Sussex. And um, the second uh, big explosion of interest in AI came in the mid-80s. Uh, with what we call expert systems. Uh, And the idea was that uh, there's a tremendous amount of knowledge work in the economy, uh, expertise being used to do all kinds of things from medical diagnosis to designing oil rigs. And uh, if you could capture the expert knowledge uh, and replicate it in a machine and have that machine do the same kind of reasoning and judgment and problem solving, uh, that could have a huge economic impact, and there were some early successes again, uh, and people over extrapolated from those early successes and They believed that we could you know automate sixty percent of the entire economy or whatever um, and this just turned out not to be the case for several reasons, um, one of which was that the technology for uh, for combining uh, evidence when There is uncertainty about the problem, which is, for example, very common in medical diagnosis. Uh, There's almost always uncertainty about what the real problem is with the patient. Um, But the technology was simply inadequate uh, for reasoning under uncertainty. Uh, And as people built larger and larger systems, they became more and more fragile. Uh, So you'd add another rule and then the other, you know, the first lot of rules would stop working properly and they'd be interactions among the rules that cause bad results and and company after company after company found that it was much harder uh, to build working systems than they thought much harder to integrate those systems uh, into their business and workflow Um, and so uh, there was a, a real ai winter in the late 80s and i remember my by about 1990 my ai course was down to 25 students uh, is now around a thousand students, um, so we are we are certainly in the middle of uh, another big explosion of interest right now, uh, and we don't know, yet know if that bubble is going to burst. We'll see.
1: You know, I I, I remember um, taking Lisp as an undergrad in the '90s, and so so today um, languages are much more accessible, right? So any, everyone... Is learning Python. So you think um, that explosion in the number of students taking, uh, uh, you know, AI courses is because of the ease with which you can code um, some certain algorithms or the libraries that are available? I tried I, I think
2: that that helps a little bit, but I think it's much more to do with the capabilities that AI systems have exhibited. So um, what's happened since uh, the beginning of the of the decade, around 2011, um, we saw very rapid advances on real problems, uh, beginning with speech uh, and then visual object recognition and machine translation uh, using deep learning technology, which had been around actually for for more than 15 years at that point, Uh, but um, a combination of various things, more data uh bigger you know bigger machines so that uh, mainly so that you could experiment more quickly Uh, i think that was that was the impact of having access to faster machines and um and then various small algorithmic improvements uh you know how we how we train those networks the algorithms we use to tweak all the the parameters of the networks were, were improved slightly uh the the details of the elements of the networks were slightly modified and that turned out to make things a bit easier. Um, so the way I often describe it is that we we had a Ferrari back in, uh, the mid nineties, but we were driving around in first gear, not realizing that if you just put it into fourth gear, you could go 200 miles an hour. Um, and so, uh, so that happened. We went into fourth, fifth, sixth gear, uh, sometime around 2011. Um, and, uh, the range of applications now for uh, machine learning technology uh, is really pretty remarkable. Um, And I think there are tens of thousands of real revenue generating applications out there, not just of deep learning, but the the fact that those successes happened meant that companies were willing to try all the AI techniques that had been developed over, over the last 70 years um, and they had data available, which made it much easier to try them. Uh, so, so now I think um, we will see, you know, even if there are no further basic advances in the technology, we'll see a, another decade of rollout uh, of all these ideas uh, in all the different application contexts.
0: This episode is brought to you by Experfy. Incubated in Harvard Innovation Lab, Experify provides custom future of work solutions such as private talent clouds and skill taxonomies. Experify differentiates itself by using subject matter experts to pre vet and pipeline candidates for AI and high end technology skills. However, Experfy Talent Cloud Platform is skill agnostic and can be licensed to build custom talent clouds for any and all skills. In a different use case, enterprises interested in employee intermobility can license the Experfy platform to create an internal gigs marketplace where interested employees can be algorithmically matched to projects, gamifying their learning experience. Visit www.xperfy.com for more information.
1: So, so um, in, in, in this context, uh, what are the things that you think are most exciting uh, in your view when we think about uh, the range of applications, right? We've got self-driving cars, you've got uh, smart homes and robots and smart cities, personal assistants uh, that, that are showing up. So where, where do you think uh, uh, groundbreaking developments are happening that can really be beneficial?
2: I think in the next uh, decade. So, if you said the last decade, the the biggest change was in uh, vision, and I would say that the the problem of recognizing objects and tracking objects in video and so on is largely solved. Still not perfect, but it's it's pretty good. Um, I think this decade will be the decade of language. Um, and at the moment, the systems are superficial. They're able to perform well on various sort of benchmark tests, but I think even even the aficionados of those approaches would say, "Yeah, it's not really extracting factual content from text. It's not able to combine factual information from one document with factual information from another document and draw conclusions. So it's not really understanding the text." Um, uh, even at a factual level, let alone uh, an emotional level, or whatever else it might be. So, um, but I think that that problem actually is solvable, uh, and the the economic value is enormous. I mean, if you if you think about the value that search engines have created, um, so just just the market cap is is more than a trillion dollars uh, for search engines. But um, Eric Brinjolfson and some of his colleagues did some studies and this is one of the questions about, you know, where's all the missing GDP, right? We have all this, all these amazing technological advances, but GDP is still uh, not growing very fast. And he, he wondered whether that was because uh, we're generating enormous value and giving it away, right? So we, nope, we don't pay for search engines. Um, so he asked people, how much would you have to be paid to give up using internet search engines for a year? And uh, for Americans, I think the average was $17,000. So if you just take that, multiply it by the number of Americans, it comes to, I I think that's something like $10 or something like that. So uh, it's an enormous amount of value that's being generated simply by keyword search and indexing based on keywords. Um, So if you had search engines that actually understood all those web pages that they've been indexing, they could read all of them. They could understand, not necessarily everything the human race has ever, has ever written. I mean, I don't understand James Joyce, so I, I don't know how the machines would, but, um, but most of it, right? So all the factual stuff, uh, all the scientific uh, textbooks uh, and so on. And read it, understood it, integrated it into a whole, You know, going back to documents from the Babylonian period uh, and so on. It would be a truly amazing resource for humanity, um, and we can, you know, we we can't really imagine all the things that we would do with it. But we couldn't really imagine all the things we would do with search engines either. Um, and so, I think I think that would be uh, such a, a wonderful thing for humanity. Uh, and I am fairly optimistic that it's going to happen in this decade.
1: Yeah, no, you, you're you're right. I mean, this uh, m- the voice is really changing. Uh, the AI uh, landscape. Uh, so I, I wanted to, yeah. um, uh, you know, ask you about the uh, computer vision, since you mentioned that was where we saw the most growth last in the last decade. <clears throat> so uh, there's this debate that's happening in the commercial space where uh, Tesla is uh, uh, trying to avoid using lidar for self-driving, whereas you've got uh, companies like uh, Waymo and Google that are betting on lidar. Mm-hmm. Do, do you see one approach being more successful than the other?
2: Um, so, I think there are interesting practical reasons why Tesla took this uh, because LiDAR uh, back in 2012 or so was really quite expensive. Um, so, they did not design all the cars with built in LiDAR. Uh, and so, they have no way to do over over the air software updates to make their cars self-driving with lidar. Um, so they have to bet on cameras. Um, and my sense is that at the moment, uh, cameras cannot quite deliver um, the required accuracy. i mean the the accident where uh, the Tesla plowed straight into the side of an enormous white truck, uh, tells you that the vision algorithms are not, are not good enough. And having multiple sensory modalities um, means that you know, in, in situations where vision fails, perhaps the LIDAR will succeed and where the LIDAR fails, perhaps the vision will succeed. So uh, it, it, it gives you another, another nine of reliability. And I, I, I always say you need about eight nines of reliability Uh, to drive successfully, and we're probably somewhere at four or five nines um, and so this will get you to six nines, so that's good. Uh, We still have a way to go. Um, And I think the other, so besides perception, the other two nines I think have to come from having a much better, what we would think of as a common-sense understanding of the driving situation, because those, those last two nines are things that happen you know once every few months, right? And you can't afford to die once every few months. So, in these situations where once every few months some weird stuff happens, uh, you know there's a cow, a flock of goats crossing the road, as happened in San Jose yesterday. Um, you uh, you have to understand what's going on, right? You have to uh, you, understand, you have to understand that that these are solid obstacles that you can't drive into. Uh, that they are going to move out the way eventually, you know. Unlike, you know, if if there's a big broken down truck in the middle of a one lane country road, uh, then it's not going to move out of the way, uh, and you should probably reverse all the way down the road and take a different route. Uh, and those kinds of things, uh, for most of the way, most of the self driving car companies are out of reach because the way they've uh, approached the problem is that they are tra- doing end to end either supervised learning or reinforcement learning in simulation uh, and they don't understand uh, first of all what's the purpose of driving right? it's not built there's no there's no explicit representation that you want to get somewhere uh and you don't want to kill people right N- neither of those things is built in right if, if if the reason the car stops when there's a human being in front is because it's just a built-in rule. When there's a human being in front, you have to stop. Just like there is when there's a red light. When there's a red light in front, you have to stop. It doesn't know the difference. It doesn't know why you have to stop. And so when it's in a situation that's unfamiliar, it it has nothing to fall back on. Uh, Whereas, um, you know, we've always built chess programs uh, to deal with the unexpected, right? The chess program knows that it's trying to win the game Uh, and it knows what happens if it does this, and the opponent does that, and it does this, the opponent does that. So it can look ahead and decide which is the most desirable course of action based on its understanding of the objective. Um, And Waymo, that's the way they are building their self-driving cars. Um, And I think that approach is now uh, working its way into the various other projects, into Uber and probably eventually into Tesla, because uh, I think it's the only way to go.
1: Yeah, that's a very interesting um, space. For, you know, for, uh, I, I think Tesla last last week turned on um, uh, stopping at stop signs and red lights. So, uh, you, so they're making progress little by little, I guess. <laughs> so, so <clears throat> switching gears to you know, you you have a, a an important role on the World Economic Forum committee uh, for AI and robotics. So what are you seeing from the perspective of Future to Work? What are the
2: current debates that are going on? Uh, so it's a great question. And this so on the council, um, we have a mix. Uh, there are very few AI people, surprisingly, on the Global AI Council. Um, so mostly uh, government ministers and CEO uh, or equivalents and um, so the policy question i would say that's uh that's most uh engaging for government ministers except for how can we cure covid uh is how is ai uh going to impact our economies uh and in particular uh the employment uh, opportunities for people and and when you look at uh ai stories in the media Uh, You know, lots of people click on things with Terminators and killer robots and whatever, but the ones that they share with their friends and family are stories about employment. Um, And that really says that people are very concerned about the prospects uh, for their jobs. And interestingly, you know, self-driving trucks uh, have been pointed to as one of the first Big areas of employment that may that may go away, and already trucking companies are having a really hard time hiring new truck drivers because the new truck drivers don't believe that job is going to exist for very long. Um, so, counterintuitively, salaries for truck drivers are going up and up uh, as a result. Um, so, the um, the the forum's AI council has. Um, created a workshop series. Uh, We were going to have our first workshop uh, April 23rd. Uh, We ended up holding it online instead. Um, And the the basic idea of the the premise that we we put to the council was that uh, at the moment economists are very much aware of this problem. In fact, I've seen several Nobel laureates say This is the biggest problem facing the world economy. Um, But economists are not in the business of designing completely new economic structures. Uh, They're not uh, the people who imagine different futures. Uh, They analyze, they could analyze one if you gave it to them. Um, On the other hand, the science fiction writers are in the business of imagining different futures, different ways you could organize the world. but they don't have the economic training to say whether that makes sense economically and whether it would hold together. So but roughly we said, we're gonna put the economists and the science fiction writers in the same room and not let them out uh, until they came up with a future that you would want your children to live in. Um, and unfortunately we couldn't put them in the same room. So uh, we, we couldn't sort of lock them down, right? They, had, they were just sitting at home uh, on a Zoom conference, uh, but we made a start. Um, and I think uh, economists are, are actually uh, pleasantly open uh, to uh, to new ideas that might come from outside the discipline. I think they're aware that they're more of an analytic than a synthetic discipline. Um, so the and the big issue is simply that uh, as AI progresses, uh, more and more. Uh, tasks that people do for money will be done more cheaply and better by machines, um, and so in, in some cases, like driving trucks, almost the entire job uh, is automated away. Um, in other cases, uh, for example, uh, a lot of the people who work for accounting firms, um, you know, they they. Uh, they just process piles and piles of paper, you know, invoices, uh, you know, reconciling, uh, payments and invoices and, uh, and that kind of thing. And, and a lot of those tasks, uh, are already being automated. There's a, there's a whole field called RPA robot process automation. Uh, and, um, and a lot of the outsourcing jobs, uh, that have, uh, boosted uh, economies in developing countries are being automated, precisely because, in order to be outsourced, they have to be parcelable. Right? We have to build, a t- and then we can send uh, twenty million of these parcels, and then get back the results. Uh, and that's sort of ripe for automation because it's repetitive and context-free right, that it's a a task that can be done without understanding a large context. Um, So if we see 40, 50, 60 percent of current jobs going away, which some economists uh, think is quite plausible, um, then there are going to be real, real difficulties. And I think eventually you'd have to say, you know, all routine, physical and mental work uh, will be done better, more cheaply by machines. Um, so I, I think there are some professions currently that are fairly immune, but not necessarily the white collar ones. Some of the many of the white collar ones are, uh, in a sense, routine mental work. Um, so radiologists are already quite nervous. Um, what happens, right? Do we end up? with an economy where there's uh a thin layer of the owners of the ai uh, and then a, a thin layer of their personal servants and then everyone else uh is fed and housed and entertained by machines uh but that's it uh is that the world that we're aiming for and you know this this is the vision that some uh, UBI, the universal basic income enthusiasts, are actually aiming for. That we would all just be given a stipend for being human and that would be that. I, I think this is a terrible failure. Um, I think to say that the vast majority of humans have have no useful function in society uh, is uh, is unacceptable. And we have to ask, what are humans? Uh, you know, what what are humans going to be able to do? Uh, what is the shape of an economy that you would want your children to grow up in when machines are doing most of what we currently think of as work? So that was the question for the workshop. And um, my own view is that we're going to have uh, a very, very different economy that what most people are going to be doing is in the nature of person to person individual services. And um, when you think about those kinds of professions right now, there's a wide range, right? It goes, you know, at the high end in terms of income and prestige, you have psychiatrists executive coaches at the low end you have childcare, elder care um but there are many more needs than that and i think it's quite likely in the future that we will we will have enormous needs for um for individual tutoring and uh i think um Keynes had a very nice phrase for it. Um, Those those who are skilled in the art of life will be able to enjoy the the fruits of technology or something like that. Um, But we need uh, need to become skilled in the art of life. Uh, And that's a complicated uh, and very individualized process. Um, So here's the problem with that idea. It sounds very nice. But the problem is, at the moment, many of these professions are low-paid and low-skilled because we simply lack the knowledge of how to do them better. So let's take childcare, right? Our children are our most precious possessions. But we pay a bored teenager $5 an hour and everything they can eat from the fridge uh, to look after our children for six hours while we're away doing something, right? Well, why is that? Because uh, we don't know any better, right? We don't know how to care for children in a highly uh, beneficial way. I'm sure many babysitters are ha- literally harmful to our children. Uh, I know my babysitter tried to teach me to smoke. So, uh, so you, have, um, you have a problem. And you know, when, when you have a broken leg, you don't pay a bored teenager $5 an hour and everything they can eat from the fridge to fix your leg, right? You, you know, in the U S your, your orthopedic surgeon is, is making $6,000 an hour, uh, for, uh, for surgery. So, um, what that seems to mean is that we need to catch up on the science and engineering of humanity, right? We've, done a lot of science and engineering of material goods. So here's my here's my cell phone, right? We spent trillion dollars of R&D to get this far, right? And has it really helped the human race? Well, a bit, um, but we in comparison have very little understanding of the psychological sciences of education uh, and so on. And um, I think those are gonna grow in importance. So when when you ask, when government Ministers ask, "What should we do? You know, how how should we invest more in STEM education?" I say, "Well, in the short term, yes, but in the long term, that's the wrong direction. At least, STEM in the sense of producing physical objects, uh, whether it's cell phones or networks or self-driving cars or whatever, that's not what we need, right? Uh, in twenty or thirty years." we need to be able to have generations of people who are extremely skilled uh, in these human sciences um, in order that they can function successfully in the economy and add value if they're not adding value uh, then they won't receive value right they won't have status and prestige and, and job satisfaction um, and everyone's standard of living will suffer so um This takes a long time. I think 20 years is optimistic to say that we could generate whole new scientific fields uh, and then create educational curricula in those fields and then train a whole generation of practitioners uh, and create new professions and credentials and all those things. It takes decades and decades and decades to do this. So my recommendation is we have to start now uh, on doing this and think about how it's going to work. That's,
1: that's fascinating. And, you know, very interestingly, the current administration, Washington's phasing out um, the National Endowment of Humanities there, you know, a lot of the funding, if you look at uh, 100 years ago, universities, uh, what the, the funding they used to receive for the humanities, it kind of uh, really been reduced to almost nothing. Uh, so, so it's, it's fascinating that, you know, you, you're providing as a, someone coming from an engineering discipline, providing this perspective that, you know, uh, I, it's very,
2: yeah. well, I, I'm not necessarily saying we should just spend more on doing the same kinds of humanities. Cause I, I, I think in, in some ways, some, some parts of the humanities are, have dug their own grave, um, by becoming, uh, by, by having an entirely introverted agenda. Um, they don't see themselves as having, uh, a benefit for humanity it's more like uh, a benefit for their own school of thought in defeating some other school of thought within uh, their own discipline um, so i think that the focus of research in those areas would need to be very different uh if we're to bring about these cha- these kinds of changes yes uh,
1: so, so uh friends russell uh, any any parting
2: words for our audience Uh, so my feeling is that the next 50 years will have uh, a bigger effect on the human race than the last 5,000 years. And, uh, so it's a very exciting time, but we need, we need everyone, uh, to, to pitch in and help make sure that the next 50 years go in the right direction and not the wrong direction.
1: Thank you. Uh, That's a great place to end. it has been an enlightening conversation.
2: Thank you, Hopri. Very nice talking to you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Future of Work Pioneers podcast. Please rate us wherever you get your podcast and also tell your colleagues and friends about the show. Be sure to tune in next week for a new episode with yet another pioneer shaping the future of work.